Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I want to confess to you maybe some of my own prejudices as we head toward Christmas and we celebrate Advent, which is just a fancy church word that, that means coming, the coming of Jesus. We're anticipating that Jesus is coming. We're anticipating the season in which we recognize for a distinct period of time that God is not up there or out there, but God really, Emmanuel, is with us. God is present with us. And so we don't believe in superstitious or magical things like we get together and if you sing this song or clap your hands or do something like that, I know you guys would never clap your hands because we don't, you're not supposed to do that in church. Um, but if like we sing a song, God will show up. We don't believe in those kind of superstitious things. Instead, we know that God is present because he has promised it and convinced us finally and sufficiently in Jesus Christ. So that if any moment we wonder, I wonder if we are alone, we can look at Jesus on the cross and realize that He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross in some mysterious fashion, He cried out to His Father, My God, my God. And He quotes Psalm chapter 22. As uh, Brian taught us this last week, the best way to pray and speak to God is to speak His words from the Psalms back to Him. Jesus uh, gives us the, the example of this on the cross. He cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that you and I would know that we will never be forsaken. And we celebrate this Christmas not just really cool things like candy and turkey ham and all, I don't really like ham, um, turkey ham and, and all sorts of the Christmas accoutrement, but we really appreciate the fact that our God has promised us finally and convincingly, convincingly in Jesus that we will never be alone. And our God was willing to come through a stable and as people begin to celebrate Christmas and as we get closer to Christmas and you hear the Christmas story told, I want to show some of my gringitude. I want to give you a few warnings and then maybe give you a centralizing thought that we'll run through Luke chapter 1. You see, Luke chapter 2 tells us the story of the birth of Jesus, but we want to look at the preparation for the birth of Jesus. And and if you're a Grinch, right, this, this is going to bother you because you want to put it off to the last minute and you don't want to celebrate Christmas until it's there, right? And then you've got other people like my, my sister-in-law, for example, who has had her house decorated and her Christmas tree up since right before Halloween, okay? And, and just love it, and that's, that's, okay, whatever, right? No judgment. Um, I'm a little bit more of a Grinch compared to a person like that. I kind of want to savor it for a little, maybe, maybe a shorter amount of time. And, and the reason I, I do that often, I think, is because of the Bible. And we're going to read in a preparation for the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1. However, if you were to look for the Christmas story in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you might find some interesting things. Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus, but he only tells us about the birth of Jesus in basically two verses. He's like, and there was an angel, and he came to this woman named Mary, and he said, hey, you're going to have a baby boy, and you're going to name him Jesus. And then the very next verse after that is, after the baby was born, a bunch of people came from afar to give gifts to this child, right? So Christmas was so important, the manger, the donkeys, the camels, all that good stuff, the silent night, a little town of Bethlehem, all of it. All of the sleigh bells and everything was so important to Matthew that he devoted two verses to it. When you get to Mark, Mark loves Christmas so much that he doesn't even talk about it. Mark loves the story of Jesus so much that he skips right past Christmas, goes all the way past Jesus Christmas, or his, his teenage years, and starts the story, the good news of Jesus, when Jesus is baptized by a guy by the name of John the Baptist. John loves Christmas so much that he also completely skips it. Doesn't even care to talk about it. In fact, he kind of zooms out and wants to give the big picture of Christmas. And he's like, you want to go back to the beginning when Jesus was born? Let me tell you about the beginning of all of the universe, the beginning of existence. In the beginning, there was the word that is Jesus, the incarnate word of God made flesh. The word of God in the beginning, and he was with God and he was God. So even in the Bible, I just want to put you in, into a frame of reference that Luke chapter 2, while it tells us a detailed story, and, and it really doesn't tell us a whole lot about, I hate to tell you this, donkeys, hay, um, or you know, it doesn't really tell us much about you know, camels, I, even though they are the first thing that show up in the Christmas, pa Christmas pageant. None of those things are in the Bible. In fact, Christmas is so important in the Bible that you only get a few verses to talk about it. And yet, as a culture... The celebration of Christmas is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
right? It used to be, and I feel like an old man right now. I'm going to sound like a crotchety old man. I'm really, I'm going to sound like Ebenezer Scrooge. But it used to be that we waited till after Thanksgiving to even begin thinking publicly, you know, as a society about Christmas, right? And if you work in retail, you know exactly what I'm about to say. Now we're like, we're encroaching on this, you know, you're not even done with your turkey and you're, in, you're supposed to have some doorbuster deals, right? And so, I mean, again, I'm going to sound like a Scrooge here and just forgive me. You don't have to think like I do, but I want to show you maybe the biblical understanding of the Bible and our biblical understanding of Christmas, Christmas from the perspective of the Bible. And, and as our society begins to celebrate this thing it calls Christmas holidays, if you will, longer and longer, the number of verses devoted to the birth of Jesus stay the same. And instead, the story of the Bible isn't about babies. It's about a God who comes to be present with us. It's about a God who is with us and for us in Jesus Christ. Of course, you can't have a death and resurrection, the good news of Christ's victory over sin, death, and all curses, but you can't have it without a birth. But there's a sense in which if we're not careful, we'll read our own understanding, our own particular biases into this story. And if it's okay with you, I want to give you a warning. So here's a central thought, right? As I see it, the difference before us is the difference for how we define and experience an emotion or if you don't want to call it an emotion, something at least it's at least a perspective called nostalgia. And then for us as Christians, a perspective that we call faith. And often, too often, the experience of nostalgia is the warm, fuzzy feeling you get about the past. Right? If warm, fuzzy isn't good for you, um, it's, it's the excitement, it's the pride. So for some of you guys who like, Every day you live, you're better as an athlete in high school than you were when you were actually in high school. You understand nostalgia. You get what I mean? Like, you were awesome in high school, right? And, and then, you know, like, the older you get, the better you were. And the stories about how awesome were you get better. That's nostalgia. It's a warm feeling about the past, right? Remember that fishing trip? Remember how big that fish was? Like, next year, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And, and there's this growing momentum and this warm, fuzzy feeling about events that took place in the past. That's nostalgia, right? It's the reason why, as we were organizing on our, on our computers uh, and some hard drives this, uh, a couple months ago, we were organizing baby pictures. Like there's a, this desire to burst into tears while looking at a baby. I don't know why, but it's, it's nostalgia. It's this growing, warm, fuzzy feeling about the past. And that's great. That's a gift of God. When God reminds us of the past, the Old Testament is replete with different reminders of our God delivers, our God saves. But just remember that faith is not a warm, fuzzy feeling about the past. Faith is the gift that God gives us by His grace through Jesus Christ to experience warm fuzzies about our future. Faith is the experience of joy and peace, not about the ghost of Christmas past. Faith is the experience that you and I uniquely have by God's grace to know that our future is brighter than our past. That we have an eternity of joy and blessing that will outweigh anything that's ever happened. I know you were an awesome basketball or football player in high school, but contrary to what your coach told you, your best days are not behind you. Our best days are in the presence of God forever and ever. And so as we celebrate Christmas, resist the temptation to only celebrate Christmas thinking about warm, fuzzy experiences of Christmas in the past. Let's experience Christmas as true Christians who by grace have been given the gift of faith such that the days ahead of us are greater, infinitely, beyond all that we could ask or imagine kind of greater than any day that we've experienced in the past. Luke chapter 1 is the preparation for that kind of a Christmas. Luke chapter 1 is the investment that 
It's meant to be understood as we celebrate this thing called Christmas, the coming of a God to be with us. Let's begin in verse 1. It's the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were delivered or excuse me, who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So let's wade through some pretty complex language here. Um, Luke, we find out later in this, in this story, this good news of Luke, we, we find out later that as as jesus the story of jesus is told by luke that luke is a physician so he's a smart dude all right he's in high esteem right there's a reason we pay doctors more than than everybody else there's a reason it's because we think they have some value and when our life's in their hands you want to know that the guy who's prepared and invested in what he knows and understands um is ready to act and and so luke is probably at least a head and shoulders above most of the people around him he's in high regard. He's a smart guy. He's not an idiot. He's not the guy that would say something crazy happened and people would want to discredit what he says. Instead, he's a smart guy. He's a well-educated guy. And even though he's already heard this story about who Jesus is, it says here in these first few verses that even though the narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us has already been shared, and even though there's people from the beginning that have been telling the story of Jesus, he says, I set out to examine, to investigate for myself this thing that we call the gospel. So I want you to know, this is a Christmas story that comes to you by way of a skeptic. That's why I tend to gravitate towards stories in Luke. He tends to throw in things that seem to just resonate with me. This is a story of a skeptic. And skeptics, when, when they open the book of Luke, are quite welcome. So even now, if you find yourself, if you're like, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you, if you think if, if faith is something that's mysterious, man, you're in good company. You're welcome here. This is, this is right where you belong, okay? Because this we're going to dig into a book that was written by a skeptic. You got questions, you got doubts about this, who this Jesus, this God is, and whether we can trust what these writers of this Bible are telling us about God and about Jesus, you're in good company because this is an account of a guy who resonates with you deeply. Skeptics are welcome. This is a story written by the skeptics. This is a Christmas for the skeptics. That's important, just as a side note, because at Christmas, we tend to believe in a lot of things of which I am currently skeptical. I'm not going to um, to, to ruin anyone's you know, life here, but there are lots of characters. There's, there's an elf on the shelf in our house. There, there's a Santa Claus, um, who, by the way, loved Jesus. Is based on a guy who like, loved Jesus and gave away everything he had. He used to be rich, but he kind of was a rich young ruler, but actually followed Jesus. There's a story of the gospel in there somewhere, but there's a Santa Claus. Uh, he does lots of cool stuff. There's, there's reindeer. There's Rudolph. Um, I mean, it, there's, there's a Jack Frost. There's, I mean, in certain cultures, there's uh, Papa Negro or the, like the, the black elf that comes and he's waiting. This is around the world. You know, he's looking for the bad things that you do. You, okay, you get the idea. There's, there's a lot of characters in the story of Christmas as we as a culture tend to celebrate it. Um, and I just want to confess to you that I'm a bit skeptical of all of them. Okay? Now, my father tells me that the minute you stop believing in Santa, he stops coming. Okay? And so, but I, I'm going I'm to give him the benefit of the doubt. My dad would never deceive me or lie to me. And no fathers or, do- or mothers would deceive their children in here either. I know that. That's certain. I, that's a fact. But if you're a bit skeptical of some of the things that are purportedly taking place over the next couple weeks in the Christmas season, you're in good company. Because this guy who's telling us the original Christmas story is a skeptic as well. I mean... So much so that it lays out a gauntlet for us. It sets a really cool example. In fact, it's my prayer for you. Get that in verse 2. He says that just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So there were eyewitnesses who walked with Jesus and they told the story of what Jesus did. They didn't say someone told me. They weren't playing like telephone or operator and sharing secrets around a circle so much so that at the end, the message is completely convoluted. These are guys that saw Jesus perform miracles. They watched Jesus die and they watched him be raised from the dead. And yet Luke, even listening to eyewitnesses, is like, I don't know if I believe that. I'm going to dig into this myself. I'm going to get to the bottom of this myself. 
And I pray that you have that same attitude, that whatever I tell you about Jesus and about what God has done to transform my own life and what God is doing to transform the world, I hope you come at it and go, you know what? I want to see that. I want to see that for myself. Because did you catch what they also did? It said that there were eyewitnesses, and Luke also not only hearing from eyewitnesses, he says, hearing from ministers of the word. Okay. Now that's, in some small sense, me. Anybody who would call you, call themselves a prophet, a priest, a pastor, a shepherd, right? You want to believe that whatever they tell you is true. I only want to tell you what God's word tells you, and I only want to share that with you, but I pray that you have the same attitude about the declaration of God's word on a weekly and daily basis as Luke does. Did you get that? He heard from ministers of the word. So like the apostles, the bishops, the people who were teaching about Jesus, Luke heard it. And even though he heard it from good spiritual leaders, he was like, I don't don't know if I trust that. And my prayer is that as we pass out Bibles in this room, we're not doing it just, you know, so that we're we're increasing our, you know, vocabulary or or increasing maybe, you know, our, our reading comprehension. But instead, my hope is that you are holding everything that we say, do, sing, and pray to this standard that God has given us in the Bible. And even as I tell you that Jesus is, Jesus said this, Jesus did this, Jesus has accomplished this, I hope that you, just like Luke, go, you know what, I want to know that for myself. I want to see that and learn that for myself. I don't want to believe it because my parents told me it was true. I don't want to just believe it because someone told me it was real. I want to believe it because I've seen it and I've experienced it. Are you ready, podcasters? <laughs> We're back. So even as you hear me declare God's word, even as you hear me declare the truth of God's word, I hope that you hold that Bible and go, you know what, I'm going to take this home with me, and I'm going to check this out for myself. And I hope that you come with a skeptic's pers- perspective. I hope you know also that this is the, the culture that I'm so grateful for with Connection Church. I'm glad that like, you're allowed to ask questions. I don't know if you've tested this out yet, I have. I tend to ask more questions than I do give answers. And what I love about Connection Church up to this point is this is a place that's safe for questions. It's a really safe place for questions. Such that if I say God says something and the Bible says something, this is a really cool thing I know about you already, that if you find yourself going, I don't know if that's true, tell me more about that. This is a safe place. And people like Luke would be welcome, I hope, in a group of people like this. Skeptics are welcome. But the good news of Jesus, even if it's for skeptics, starts in places that tend to feed our skeptical tendencies. In verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of, of, the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So stop right there. This is a really good resume for two really awesome people, okay? Did you catch that? Catch that? Zechariah, he's a priest, right? He's one of these spiritual leaders. He intercedes for his people. He loves his people such that he wants to pray for the people that he loves. He wants these people around him to be right, be in right standing with God. But then it says that he met a girl named Elizabeth and married her, and she also is of a priestly line. She's a daughter of of Aaron. Side note here, she's a preacher's daughter, okay? So she's like, I'm biased here, she's like up there, right? She's cream of the crop, okay? All that is to say is that, I don't know if those little boys are here, but there's some little boys in our midst, a part of Connection Church, that need to constantly hear me say that if you're going to come after a preacher's daughter, you better bring your A game, (laughs) okay? 
Now, we live in a society where the preacher's daughter could go and marry a dude even if the preacher doesn't condone it. But this is a society in which the preacher had to give the daughter away, right? There are no shotgun weddings in this particular society, which is funny to talk about the next story we will have next week, a girl by the name of Mary. But for our purposes here, there are no shotgun weddings. You marry the preacher's daughter, the priest's daughter of the lineage of Aaron, a priest, a man of spiritual height and a man of spiritual depth is going to give away his daughter. So this dude's legit. Zechariah is not only of a lineage of priests, but he's a legit dude because there's some priest in the lineage of Aaron, a pretty high title, who also gave his daughter Elizabeth to be married to this guy. These are good people. This is, this is Mr. and Mrs. South Dakota, right? This is Mr. and Mrs. in the back of your in the back of your, you know, your, your yearbook, this is most likely to succeed, right? This is Mr. and Mrs. High School. This is them. They're great. They have a good resume here. Verse 7, what's the first word? But. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. This is only a side note and it's his own sermon for another day. But notice that the people who had it all figured out, did you catch their resume? Not only were they priests, because you can be a priest and be a hypocrite. We know this. You can be a preacher's daughter. You can go the other way. We know this. But even these people, it says, were good people. It says that they were both, verse 6, righteous before God. It says that they were both walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord but not everything worked out so well for them. Just a side note, maybe for another day, but for you in this room, you think if you could just get your life cleaned up, then things would be better. I want to warn you, God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. Sometimes, even though you get it right, we still live in a broken and fallen world in which things don't work out like we want. Verse 8, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So his job was to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, a place where other people who were not righteous, they were not allowed to go, and his job was to go in and burn incense on behalf of, of the iniquity and sin of his people. And so he was going in to this Holy of Holies. He was burning incense and he was praying for the sins of the people. He loved these people and he wanted them to be right with God. And so he was going into the Holy of Holies, as was his duty, into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were outside praying at the hour of incense. So get the picture. Here is a guy who's not only is he you know, in right standing, but he's, he seems to be loving people rightly and he seems to be praying rightly and the people are gathered around him praying. But good news often starts with unlikely circumstances. And so there's this story, and, and I don't know if you caught that, but not only were they righteous and blameless, but it says that Elizabeth was one unable, unable to have children. And you can't quite catch this, but it says some really brutal things about a woman and about a person that I recommend you never say. It just says she was barren, she was both, and they were both advanced in years. That's a nice way of saying they were past their prime, right? Their best years were behind them. The best memories they had were not necessarily in the recent past, but more in distant past. And what's implied here is pretty brutal. But it's meant to set the stage for the kind of thing that God always does. This is a common thing. Um, you've heard me talk about this before. A, a few months ago, we were talking about the, the lineage um, of, of, of some men and how sometimes it doesn't work out right. Sometimes you're, you're from a family tree like mine. It's not so great. But the first in this line of God's chosen people starts with a guy by the name of Abram and his wife Sarai. And they were so old, the Bible tells us, that they were beyond their productive years. Saint uses the same brutal language. And God comes and he says, I'm going to do something and it's going to bless every household, every nation, every language. Every person on the earth is going to have blessing available to them by the thing that I'm going to do for you. And he says that he's going to give them a child, even though they were very, very old. In fact, Sarai was likely in her 90s. And God says to her, I promise you, 
I'm going to fulfill my loving promise to the world through you, and it's going to come through the son that you're going to bear. And it says that she laughed, so much so that God has this interesting exchange that ends up being the name of their son. And God promises and says, I'm going to do something amazing. It seems like an unlikely outcome. You're 90, you're going to have a baby. And in the book of Genesis, we find that the first, one of the first people God calls in this long lineage of faith and this group of people that God, even though they fail, he calls them back to himself over and over and over again. The first thing he does is he finds the most unlikely of circumstances and he says, you in your 90s, you're going to have a baby son. And she laughs. She's like, that's impossible. But I want you to see that's what God does. God tends to do amazing things through the most unlikely of circumstances. The kingdom, as we saw, is like a mustard seed. It looks like nothing, but then it grows exponentially. But then right down the line, Isaac marries this girl, and her name's Rebecca. And Rebecca also was completely unable to have children, and she lives past her prime years of having children. And yet God answers Isaac the father's prayers as he petitions to God, and she conceives, and after, this is God's sense of humor, after not having children and not being able to have children, she has what? Twins, right? Ha <laughs> ha, boom. Oh, you want a child? Boom, have two, right? And God answers this prayer in a powerful way. And Rebecca gets to carry on the lineage. So, so just pick that right. So there's an unlikely circumstance in which a 90-year-old woman was promised that she was going to have a baby and God was going to bless the nations through the baby. This baby happens to come even though she was in her 90s. He marries a girl, and what do you know? She can't have a baby either, right? For some reason, they're unable to have children. I say she, not to lump it on the she, but the Bible tells us that there's some explanation it, it belongs to Rebecca. And Isaac prays, and even though God's promise looks likely, it's unlikely to come true, because again, if this promise is going to come through this lineage, we're going to need a lot of boys, right? We're going to need tons of boys. We're going to carry on this name, and something awesome is going to happen. Isaac prays, and in the most unlikely of circumstances, God answers the prayer and gives them twins. The two sons, if you remember, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the Bible tells us, was kind of the favorite. Esau, not so much. But also his name means slippery because apparently as he kind of came out of his mother's womb, he was latched onto his older brother's foot. And they kind of prophesied over and like, you're going to be after your brother your whole life. And he stole his brother's birthright. And then he married this girl by the name of Rachel. And wouldn't you know it, Rachel wasn't able to have children until God answered a powerful prayer and Rachel was given not only one son, but two. One, a guy by the name of Joseph who ends up being kind of a big deal in the Old Testament and another guy by the name of Benjamin who is of a priestly line. It's important because she wanted to have children and she actually died while giving birth to Benjamin. I'll just let you marinate on that one. She prayed for sons, and she got her sons and died in childbirth. But in the unlikely circumstances of their ability to have children, which seemed to be past the possibility, God answers a prayer and does something amazing. There's this other woman that comes along. Her name is Manoah. Or excuse me, Manoah is the father, and there's this other woman who comes along, and she happens to also be unable to have children, and, and they pray to God that he, would, that he would give them children, and they promise if they would permit them to have a son that, that, that he would be given over to the Lord. And they just happen to get pregnant, and they just happen to have this son, and his name is Samson. And he turns out to be the most supernaturally muscular, supernaturally strong guy who's ever lived. And he led and judged and guided his people. In unlikely circumstance, God answered a prayer, did something miraculous, and delivered his people. And then along comes this other woman. Her name is Hannah. And she prayed, and she was so desperate to have a child that when people saw her praying in the temple, they thought she was drunk. She wanted a child so greatly, and she said, God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And wouldn't you know it, God answered in a powerful way. And lo and behold, there's this guy 
His name's Samuel. He's got a couple books written after him in the Old Testament. And in unlikely circumstances, God uses a man. He anoints King Saul and King David. Prominent, amazing guys. In unlikely circumstances, God sometimes doesn't answer the prayers we always want him to answer, but it seems that God sometimes, in the most unlikely circumstances, intervenes and does something amazing. And then along comes this woman, and Luke wants us to remember and know that this girl, this lady named Elizabeth, yeah, she's well past her childbearing years. And the ability for her to have children is probably long since gone, and she's probably lost all hope. But it says that something happens here, and the place where it happens is what I want you to see. Inside of this temple, this guy Zechariah was praying, and outside this temple, people were praying. If you could just stop in a minute, just a minute, and kind of see this picture that God sometimes, as we saw this in the book of Acts, God sometimes brings life to a place just because of the faithful prayers of his people. Now, God doesn't always answer prayers. Like, everything you pray for won't necessarily happen. But I do know this. The majority of the things that do happen in Scripture happen while someone is praying or because someone is praying. So that doesn't mean that everything we pray is going to happen. It does mean that, as we saw last week, we should ask, we should knock, and we we should seek to a father who does not give terrible things to his children. He gives good gifts, takes care of his children. So we ask boldly, knowing that sometimes our father is going to say no. And just because he doesn't give a pony to his 16-year-old daughter doesn't mean he's a bad father, right? But he always gives good gifts, the gifts that are necessary. He gives good gifts, and we should ask. Because even though sometimes God doesn't answer the prayers like we ought to, he never seems to work when people aren't praying. Here's this guy praying inside, there's people praying outside. It says that in verse 10, there was a whole multitude of people praying outside at the hour of incense. I pray that that's what our church looks like. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. I'll just throw this out there. Um, This is written by a skeptic, remember? This is written by a guy who probably doesn't believe in stuff like this. But as Zechariah goes into the Holy of Holies, there is an angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Yeah. And fear fell upon him. Uh Uh-huh. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, which incidentally is one of the most common things that we see repeated in the Bible every time God shows up. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer, you might ask, was heard? says, your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. Remember that guy, Samson? Nazarite wasn't allowed to drink because he was a muscle man. It was a special, holy role set aside for him. Luke wants you to remember that story. He wants you to remember that this is not uncommon, that God sometimes works in unlikely circumstances, and this is what it looks like. Be great before the Lord, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Easy, Zechariah. Careful what you say about your wife. Verse 19, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their due time. So stop for a second. Let's pick up on just some of the stuff that Luke is throwing at us at high velocity. Zechariah gets a promise, and even though the promise is being made by an angel, this is crazy because I don't know if you've ever seen face-to-face an angel, he gets to see Gabriel himself. Luke's, Luke makes, to, makes sure to remind us that this is Gabriel, and Gabriel introduces himself as Gabriel because this is the same Gabriel that came and gave the prophecy to Daniel hundreds of years before. 
This is the same Gabriel that most of at this time the rabbinic traditions believed was the man that was supposed to come and destroy Jerusalem in the book of Ezekiel. That's what these people would have believed at this time. Gabriel's the real deal. When God wants to say something to some people, he sends Gabriel. He shows up in the next chapter even. And I love Gabriel's response because you got to figure that this being that's not a human has been probably given some amazing powers. I don't know. Let's start with teleportation. How did he get there? Did he walk? He's there, right? Boom. He's inside the Holy of Holies. No one saw him go in. God sent him there in some invisible, powerful, miraculous way. There he is. And then, by the way, whatever he looks like, the Bible tells us over and over again, he looks scary. Okay, so picture all the beautiful, cuddly, sweet little Cupid angels you can imagine, right? Picture all of them, little precious moments angels, little figurines that are adorable, they shoot arrows, those are those little angels. Take all those pictures and throw them out the window, okay? Because this angel, every time he shows up, scares people, terrifies people. That tends to be a theme, in fact, for the next couple of chapters. He comes up there and he scares people. And yet, as terrifying and powerful and miraculous as he is, what is Zechariah the skeptic's response? do i know this is really true i mean with all due respect to your teleportation your terrifying appearance clearly your divine powers how do i know you're not just messing with me it's a story for skeptics man and i love gabriel's response because he's at least sort of human-esque in this because he responds exactly like I would respond if I were Gabriel. Thank God he has not given me any of the gifts and talents of Gabriel because I would use them to destroy people, as I'm sure Gabriel wanted to do. And I bet he wanted to kill Zechariah, but he was under orders to give a message, and he did the next best thing. But listen to his words. He's like, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Can you hear you know, the, the most self-assured resume spraying person you've ever met. I'm a manager. I have authority here. I drive a Dodge Stratus. I can tell you what to do. That's from Saturday Night Live. It's neither here nor there. It's not the gospel. You know that guy? You listen to me. Look, look at my badge. You listen to me because I have this badge. Do you know who I am? And he responds exactly like I would do if I could teleport and be awesome and do things that God told me to do and give messages to people and scare them. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Have you ever stood in the presence of God? No, I stand in the presence of God. And you now in verse 20, behold, will be silent. Which again, I assume is the nice way he was like, I'm about to kill you. And God was like, no, don't do that. I need him. It's kind of important. And he says, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their due time. Verse 21, there's an irony here. The people were waiting outside for Zechariah and they were wondering at this delay in the temple. Why is he in there? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained completely mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. Just pick the irony here, okay? This is Zechariah. He's an awesome priest. He's a leader of people. And isn't it most ironic? What does God do to the guy whose job is probably to lead people mostly by reading and speaking the good news of what God has done and the good news of his forgiveness and grace and righteousness that comes through God alone? He tells the guy to shut up for a few months. Irony of ironies. He says, hey, you think you're special. Really? Don't talk anymore. I don't know if you know this, but like, and this is arguable, the only gift spiritual leaders like me have is the ability to talk, right? And that's, that's debatable, right? I've made up some new words. My grammar, ooh. Don't try to diagram some of the sentences I say. They, they don't, they, they, it, it'll be a circle. But if you take the one thing that this guy seemed to have his identity and role in, and you take it away from him, now, that's just kind of funny. He asked for a sign, and what do you know? He got it. I want to show you this. Maybe God will silence you in order to point toward Jesus. It's possible that God's will may be more about Jesus than anything you have to say or do. 
It may be that God is asking you and me, just like Zechariah, to give up something that we hold very dearly. Not because we like it, but because God is going to do something more amazing through it. You've got to think, this guy, like, he's wanted to have a son his whole life, and now he finds out he's having a son. And, and the one thing he can't do, he can't tweet about it, he can't post it on Facebook, he can't tell any of his friends, he can't do any of those things. And irony of irony, God shuts his mouth and says, you wait, you wait quietly. You sit in the corner and you think about what you've done and you don't say a word because it's going to happen and you're not going to get to say a single word until it does. Verse 24, it says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth, wouldn't you know it, she conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. God heard the prayer. God heard the prayer of his people and he sent a gift to them. An amazing gift. But notice what Elizabeth does. Um, this, is, this is kind of treacherous ground to walk on. And I want to approach this as sensitively as I can. Um, there are many I know who would make awesome parents, like better parents than me. And for whatever reason, they're not able to have kids. Uh, you know those people? And it just fills me with self-righteousness because I'm like, the worst parents in the world are the most prolific, the most productive, right? I mean, kids all the time. And I know some people that are awesome parents. And they're not able to have kids. And they've been praying this way. And God hasn't answered that prayer. And I believe there's a whole lot of awesome things that happen as a result. But one of the things they tend to do is that even in pregnancy when there's a glimmer of hope, they tend to keep it a secret. Right? It's, it's rare. It's rare that a woman, like, posts on Facebook her pregnancy test. Right? We just found out we're pregnant. Don't tell anyone. In fact, you keep it a secret. You don't tell anyone. It's like, because you never know. I may be reading a little bit too much into this, but what does it tell us about Elizabeth? It says she waited five months. She kept herself hidden. What an awesome picture of the way that God is working in an unlikely circumstance. She hides. Who knows? Maybe it's going to be real. Maybe it's not. God answers a prayer in a powerful way. way. You have to think that she's probably done that before. She probably tried to have kids and she's probably kept herself hidden, waiting, and maybe they've miscarried and kept quiet for a couple months. But after five months... Not this time. And lo and behold, God does something amazing. The book of John tells us about this boy that's born. In chapter 1, verse 6, it says, There came a man and he was sent from God. Yeah, we know that now, don't we? Because he had a unique conception. There came a man, he was sent from God, and his name was John. Who named him? A dude named Gabriel. I am Gabriel. You will name this boy John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He, that is John, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And there was true light which coming into the world enlightens every single person. For He was in the world and the world was made through him, that is Jesus, and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own didn't even receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This guy named John ends up being kind of a big deal. And the story that we're reading ends up painting a pretty awesome picture of the way that God works in completely unlikely circumstances. And the way that God sometimes answers prayer, sometimes miraculously and sometimes in ways we don't understand, in order to do something amazing. And a guy by the name of Matthias Grunewald came along in the 19th century, Dutch guy, and he painted this to explain this story. And to this day, this is one of my favorite pictures. It's a fold-out, but there's, this is the central f- picture. And, and I want you to see what's going on here. This, 
this baby Jesus, the silent night, holy night, this, this baby Jesus born in a manger, this is his ultimate fate. We just sang that he was born to die. He was born to be a king, born to reign in us forever. And this is that, the way in which he did it. Unlikely circumstance. And Grunewald wanted to tell a story, and as is common with a lot of 18th century Dutch paintings, there's a lot of weird cryptic symbols. You can start to see them. My favorite, for example, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a sheep, okay, on the bottom right-hand corner. Fleece was white as snow. He's holding a cross, and he's bleeding out of his jugular into a chalice. Kind of weird, right? Lamb of God, bleeding into a communion cup. Get it? Kind of crazy. But next to him is there's this dude, and there's some weird cryptic writing. And it's the words from the quotation of a guy by the name of John, and meant to make us believe that this is him. And he's dressed really funky, because that's the way John ended up being. It says that he lived out in the desert. Probably smelled funky. He said he wore a, a, wore a cloak, and he had a belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and honey. Kind of a weird guy. Pretty grungy. And it says in interesting cryptic writing next to him, it says, he must increase and I must decrease. You see, this whole miraculous thing that God is doing in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, I would argue the whole miraculous thing that God is doing in this entire story is to point to and glorify our God who has saved us, our God who would rather be born in a grungy manger than to leave us alone, our God who would rather die on an old rugged cross than to leave us abandoned and forsaken. And there's this guy, and his name is John. He's right next to him. And if you zoom in on the picture, you'll notice Grunewald is a great painter. He could paint everything in proportion if he wanted to. But notice the disproportionality of this dude's finger. Like, it's, it's as long as his entire head. And, as they tend to do with light, notice how much brighter it is than anything else. And if I would make an argument for this Christmas and for you to reflect on and to pray about, and maybe this story begins to give us, as we're preparing this thing we called Christmas? What if, like Luke, and we took Luke seriously, everything that happened before Christmas was actually just meant to lead up so that one day there might be a big bony finger pointing to Jesus above all else? Now, the story's an impossibility. Completely impossible. Some of you know why. John wasn't present for the crucifixion of Jesus, was he? John, the special baby boy that Elizabeth had been praying for, was given to them, and he died a young man, beheaded, because he spoke out against people in authority, the will of God for those people. This picture's an impossibility, but Grunewald wants you to think, what would it look like had Jesus survived, Jesus, or if John had survived to see Jesus' death, John would continue to do the same thing he did in his life. He would point to Jesus. Luke tells an elaborate, crazy story about something that happened meant to remind us of all sorts of ways that God answers prayers in unlikely circumstances, encourage us that God hasn't abandoned us, forsaken us, all not so that John gets famous and all not so that even Jesus said that John is the greatest man born among, from a woman. And yet his will was to die so that he could point to Jesus. What if we celebrated Christmas like the Bible celebrated Christmas. Like, what if we celebrated this season like the Bible celebrates it? What if every story leading up to it was simply to make much of the amazing thing that Jesus is doing? What if your family is coming over for Christmas not because of nostalgic, warm, fuzzy reasons, and maybe for those of us, maybe we may, that isn't what happens when your family gets together. You wish it would. But what if we're really supposed to get together and celebrate this so that we can point to Jesus? What if all this stuff that follows Christmas, and don't hate it, don't hate it, don't be a Scrooge, right? Yeah, Christmas trees are pagan, but so was Abraham, right? What did God do? Hey, you're going to do something amazing. I'm going to bless the world through you. Right? Frosty the snowman, great. Whatever, he's not the devil. But what if all of the things surrounding Christmas were meant to point to Jesus? 
And what if everything you and I did leading up to Christmas made much of him? Wouldn't that change the way Black Friday looked? Wouldn't that change the way you got ready for Christmas? Wouldn't that change the way we celebrated this season? Wouldn't that point to something much bigger than the credit card bill you will have to pay come January? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're doing something amazing. Uh, We thank you that you use unlikely circumstances to do amazing things, Um, especially when we find that we're skeptics and we doubt them. I thank you that you, you take great joy in using skeptics and doubters and making them into believers. So right now, thank you for that. Even in me, uh, as a walking, talking skeptic, I thank you that even now you're conforming me to a faith that's greater, that points to something much bigger than anything my life could have ever been poured out for. I thank you that even in this room, if there's doubts, if there's skeptics, would they hear these words of Luke as encouragement, um, that this message is just for you. Yes, it seems unbelievable, but that's what God does. He seems to take unlikely circumstances, and he seems to fulfill amazing promises and answer amazing prayers. From Isaac to Jacob to Benjamin to Samson, Samuel, all the way to John. And man, if there isn't isn't an unlikely circumstance that we celebrate at Christmas, it goes all the way to Mary. And yet you use these crazy, unlikely circumstances to do amazing things. Encourage us as we're looking across this week that's, that's coming up in front of us. Um, it doesn't seem like a miraculous thing is about to happen. There's really no reason this week we should look ahead and think that something amazing or miraculous is going to happen. Would you begin to stop us in our tracks that we would realize that Jesus is not the reason for this season. Jesus is the reason for every season. And every season and unlikely circumstances, you want to bring new life. For those of us, maybe we need to believe and confess that for the first time. And it's, it's so difficult to believe. It's hard to believe that this is real. Um, even right now, our, our own minds and understanding is fighting against it. Just like even as Zechariah was staring at an angel, he's like, I don't know if I can believe this. God, would you begin to give us the faith that if it's for the first time, let us confess that you're Lord. Let us confess that this Jesus is real and our life is new in him. But for those of us, maybe we're just easily distracted. Uh, man, and our culture is, a, is an example of this. Just Christmas comes along, and, and it's about anything with Jesus. I confess to you, I, I've, the time I've spent preparing for celebrating Christmas that actually was a declaration of the gospel is so much smaller than all the rest of the stuff I've been doing to prepare for Christmas. I confess that's a, that's a distraction. God, that's not biblical. That's not what Luke wants me to think about in these days leading up to the coming of our King to be born into a humble world. But instead, as we prepare, help us to be less distracted, help us to see and celebrate the joy that comes, not from the ghosts of Christmas past, but from the faith that you've given us, that our days ahead of us because of this coming King are infinitely greater than the days behind us. And the victory that is declared for us in Jesus Christ is the victory we will celebrate until the end. Amen. God, I thank you um, for these people, and I thank you for what you're doing continue to work and bless us through your good news. It's in your name we ask it.